This is They Create Worlds, episode 167, Activision and Kotick, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Once again, we go into the breach. This time, we don't go to war. We don't find out about media being photogenic. We find out about the active vision of Bobby Kotick as he took the reign of everyone's favorite company and apparently saved it. Yes, so Bobby Kotick, of course, has been a lot in the news recently because of the sale of the company, the pending sale of the company to Microsoft, which has largely been brought about because of a sexual harassment scandal that has happened at the company under Bobby Kotick's watch. Not that Kotick himself was personally harassing, but that this was going on at the company and its subsidiaries and that upper management knew about it and didn't do enough to combat it. Kotick's been in the news a lot recently, and he's certainly been in the news a lot over the past decade or more as well as Activision gets portrayed as this kind of corporate behemoth crushing everything in sight run by the soulless CEO who does not care about games and wants to suck all of the fun out of everything and ruin everyone's life. A controversial figure. As with any controversial figure, there certainly is some truth, some germ of truth in the way he is perceived by the public at large, but it is a more nuanced story than that, and if they create worlds, we really do try to tell the full story of things that have happened in video game history. The story of Activision under Bobby Kotick is definitely a, a fascinating story, one that we're still not ready to tell in full. We're not going to be covering the entire history of the company from Bobby's purchase or buying into the company at the end of 1990 all the way to the present. We really want to drill down over an episode or two here on kind of the first two-ish decades of Activision under Bobby Kotick and how this individual, who is a very driven businessman, which is what accounts for a lot of the perception of him uh, in the media and amongst uh, game enthusiasts, how this very driven financial person took a company that was on the verge of ruin, literally on the verge of ruin, and turned it into the most successful third-party video game software publishing company in the world. Hard to believe that the 1990s was two to three decades ago. (laughs) Yep, it's getting back there. We've talked about Activision in its earlier incarnations, so we are not going to talk about them here other than in a little bit to paint the scene of the company as Bobby Kotick found it. If you want to know all about the founding and early years of Activision, if you want to learn all about the great games that Activision did on the Atari 2600, if you want to learn about the later years, the post-crash years, where they tried to become kind of a more avant-garde artistic company on computer platforms, how that didn't work and how the original CEO was ousted and replaced by Bruce Davis, and then the direction that Bruce Davis took the company in, we have multiple episodes that we will link in the show notes that covers all of that history of Activision. Before we get into Bobby Kotick and Activision, we first have to spend some time explaining Bobby Kotick. 
because even though he bought into Activision at a quite, quite young age, he was only about 27 years old when he bought his stake in Activision, very young to be taking over a company that he was not his own entrepreneur of. He had already been a businessman for almost a decade by that point. And so there's a lot to look at with Bobby Kotick, the man, before we get into Bobby Kotick, the Activision CEO. Bobby Kotick was born in 1963 and hails from a Jewish family in Long Island, Roslyn, New York, which is in Long Island. Long Island is pretty posh area, lots of outlying suburbs of New York City, kind of known as a suburban or country kind of retreat for people that live in New York City. He came from a well-off family. I mean, they weren't mega, mega rich, but he was well-off. His father was an attorney. His mother was an interior designer. Bobby Kotick was a businessman. Even as a child, he was a businessman. He was a very driven individual. He was very high energy. I'm sure probably still is. Profiles of him in the 1980s when he was in his early 20s just talk about the pure adrenaline that he had. Like He was always rushing from place to place, always in a hurry, always enthusiastic, always bubbling over. Very energetic individual. And he was always a very driven individual. He talks himself in fact, about how he has a compulsive personality. Even though he has this compulsive-driven personality, he's also a man that's largely free of vice and is not really driven by pleasures. He has talked in the past how he's addicted to food. (laughs) So, I mean, he's not completely soulless or free of pleasure. But the thing is, he was driven to make money, and he wasn't driven to then spend it. He kind of never understood, as a teenager, the partying lifestyle, going out and blowing all your money on this and that. He says that he played video games some when he was a kid, because, I mean, who could avoid it? He was a teenager when the the golden age of video games happened. Uh, He's talked about playing Defender when he was a teenager. Some of that may be part of trying to rehabilitate his image trying to get away from this guy that takes the fun out of games. But it's, it's believable enough that he played some back then, because he was a teenager right at that time. But he was never driven by those kind of pleasurable pursuits. He was driven to make money as efficiently as possible. As part of kind of the myth-making around him at the time that Activision Blizzard came to be, obviously the press really wanted to cover that big merger of Activision and Vivendi, which owned Blizzard, which is where the name Activision Blizzard comes from, and the success that Bobby Kotick had. So there were a lot of profiles of Bobby Kotick kind of in the 2007 to 2009 timeframe. Kotick, being a successful businessman, was, of course, trying to mythologize himself a little bit at that point. I mean, these profiles aren't meant to be critical profiles. They're talking about what an amazing businessman he was. So they're very laudatory. You don't get the other side of it. But we can take some direction from these profiles anyway and kind of read between the lines and see what they say about Bobby Kotick, the man. In one of these profiles, his mother talked about how the first time that she kind of knew that business was in his blood is that when he was very young and he had a friend over for a play date, 
he sold an ashtray to his playmate that the family owned for three dollars. <laughs> you know, this is this is one of those, you know, this is one of these cute stories. It's just like these stories that you get of technology geniuses who are, you know, wiring lamps or building calculators when they're six years old. I mean, it's the same kind of story, except just applied in a business context. It definitely shows something about Bobby Kotick. It shows that he likes making deals, but it also, I think, kind of shows that he's almost compelled to be a salesman. I mean, he didn't really have a right to sell his family's ashtray, presumably. (laughs) Who knows what the kid saw in the ashtray that he was selling it to, you know. It's a story that's like, oh, isn't that cute? But it's also a story that's like, okay, this is a guy that is always looking for an angle, always playing the angles. He's not too attached to anything in particular, certainly not attached to his family's possessions. He's attached to the idea of the almighty dollar, (laughs) for better or for worse. Throughout his youth in Long Island, he was involved in all sorts of little side business ventures. When he was in Little League, was on a Little League ball club, but when he wasn't playing, he was selling concessions in his baseball uniform at the Little League games. Wow. Yeah. When he was a little older, he started a business where he was renting out Studio 54, the famous New York City night spot, on its off nights for teenage events. He's surrounded by children or teenagers, you know, depending on his age, and he's sort of engaging in some of the same activities they are, but he's not so focused on the activities as he is on how he can profit from the activities. So he's playing Little League Baseball, and I think he's legitimately a baseball fan. He even has a cameo as the owner of the Oakland A's in the movie Moneyball, (laughs) because he knew a guy who knew a guy, and so he plays the owner of the Oakland A's in two scenes in the movie Moneyball. We'll definitely, as much as we can with copyright, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but we'll we'll try to put some of that in the show notes, because it's just kind of interesting. You know, he's playing baseball, and I think he legitimately likes baseball, but he's more interested in the concessions and how he can make money at his baseball games. As a teenager, he understands that teenagers go out and party and have fun and go dancing and whatever else they do, but he's not really interested in these activities for himself, but he sees these teenagers need a place to go to have fun, and I can make this happen. Then he started making cross deals. So it's like, okay, we're renting out Studio 54 for these parties. Now, who else can I bring in? Who else can I serve as a middleman? Like, can I bring in an ice cream vendor to this party at Studio 54 and make some money as the middleman there? You know, what else can I bring as part of this? As the profile said, you know, he didn't engage in the same fun activities that the other teens were engaging in. He didn't understand spending money. That's the way he's put it himself. So it's not controversial. As he put it in one profile, he's like, I saved my money. I still have my money. And he's talking about the money that he had as a teenager. And he's exaggerating a little for dramatic effect, but the point is still there. His entire childhood, even, well before he was a company executive, his entire childhood was based around dispassionately analyzing opportunities and figuring out how he could insert himself into these opportunities. Another thing he did when he was a teenager is he ran a booth at the U.S. Open, the tennis tournaments. Back in those days, it's probably still the same. I don't know. I I don't follow tennis, so I don't know. But back in those days, it was really hip to dress like the tennis stars. The fans wanted to dress in the same kind of outfits that the tennis stars wore, or at least some fans did. 
So at the U.S. Open, there would be booths run by sporting goods or fashion companies or whatever that would essentially sell replica outfits, replica tennis outfits of of the great stars. You know, it's it's kind of weird. It would be akin to wearing a baseball uniform, not one of the jerseys that people like to wear, you know, just the jersey, but it'd be akin to wearing an entire baseball uniform of a baseball team you enjoy or an entire football uniform of a football team you enjoy, except in tennis. He ran the LSE booth at the U.S. Open and was hawking tennis attire. So again, in other sports, like here's a sport, here's an opportunity. He's not the one that came up with the idea of doing this. He was running the booth for this company. I don't know this for certain, but presumably his family went to the U.S. Open one year and he saw all of these booths here and he was like, aha, that's for me. In the same way that at the Little League games, he saw the concessions here and was like, aha, that's for me. I think it's very telling. There's one quote from a little bit later on from him in a newspaper where he talks about how he supports Reagan and he supports Republicans. And in this article, and I'll I'll get this exact quote here, it's just interesting. This was when he was a 21-year-old college student is when this quote comes from in the early 80s, you know, in the Reagan time period. He said, I disagree with the Republican platform on abortion, school prayer, and the Equal Rights Amendment, but I base my vote on economics. I just think that says so much about Bobby Kotick. He had liberal values. As a Long Island Jew, it's not surprising that he had liberal values. But even his social values aren't as important to him as where he sees the economic advantage. I think that says something about the man right there in that one quote. What do you think? He's certainly the kind of person who really is out to find what is the kind of way I can make the most money, and I will support whatever platform, political or otherwise, that will enable me to make more money. Exactly. And there's no indication that he's ever done anything shady to make money. We're not casting aspersions of that kind here. Who knows what may be out there in the world, but I mean, we don't have evidence of that. But it's very clear that from childhood, literally from childhood, he has had a hyper focus on making money. And this is where a lot of the backlash comes from within the video game community, because video game fans, I think more than fans of any other entertainment medium, want to feel a connection with the people that are making their games. They want to feel like there's a passion there. A lot of that gets wrapped up in companies because you've never quite had auteurs in the same way in the video game industry as you have in other industries. So in the book publishing industry, you might throw your weight behind authors you like. Of course, the big publishing houses are big, soulless corporations that are only concerned about making money. But because you have individual authors to latch on to, you don't care about that so much. In the movies, movie studios are big, soulless corporate entities that just want to make money. But people are able to latch on to the directors they like or the actors they like and, and like to feel that there's some kind of connection there and a passion for the work. With video game companies, there are comparably few artistic individuals that really stand out. I mean, you have your Shigeru Miyamoto's and your Sid Meier's and a few individuals like that, but there's a lot more focus on companies and always has been than there has been on individuals. And so I think there's this real desire to feel like 
the company is in it for the love of the game. Especially since so many of these companies, like way back in the day when they first started, were founded by people who were in it for the love of the game. Electronic Arts, I mean, say what you will about Trip Hawkins, but he legitimately likes games, has always legitimately liked games. He was a game player in his own life, and even though he was an MBA and brought in other MBAs, he was a game player. Activision, the founding CEO of Activision, Jim Levy, was not a game guy, but he was an equal co-founder with those Atari programmers who really loved games. A lot of the smaller companies out there, your Surtex of the world or your Origin Systems of the world or your Sierra Onlines of the world, all of these companies, Broderbund, all these companies that we've talked about in other episodes, tended to be founded by people that even if they had some business acumen, were also very dedicated and passionate gamers themselves to one degree or another, or at least were dedicated to the craft. Ken Williams was never a gamer, but he was really dedicated to the craft of programming and making games. Just think about Interplay, which we just talked about with Fallout. Yeah, exactly. That's another example. By gamers, for gamers, right there. Right. I think that for a long time, there was this real wrap-up in rooting for the developer or the publisher that has caused gamers to want to have this kind of real connection with the companies that are making their games. When these companies turn out to be big businesses run by businessmen who don't really have much interest in video games themselves, I think the backlash becomes much greater sometimes amongst video game aficionados than it does amongst enthusiasts of other media like books and movies and television. So the fact that Bobby Kotick is this man who is entirely focused on wealth generation That really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I can certainly see that. Following in your same point you're trying to make here, a lot of things that gamers do, they get very emotionally invested in the game. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because of multiple reasons. The multisensory engagement you have going on, not just audiovisual, but by uh, how you move, tactile. Mm Mm-hmm. You have an engagement with that media that's not three hours like in a movie. Mm -hmm. You're playing that game hours and hours. You're playing it over a weekend. You're playing it for 14, 18, 28, 34, 36. Pull up your Steam list and take a look at what your (laughs) playtimes are. That level of engagement, that level of dopamine hit that you're getting into your brain can, in a sense, create a level of addiction. It can create a sense of connection and obsession almost that some people handle better than others. Mm -hmm. When you see something that you love, that you cherish, think about your favorite book when you were a child, your favorite song that you heard on the radio, your favorite movie. Those are sort of like a three, four, maybe five in a lifetime kind of thing. With a lot of games, you have a lot more of those. You have a lot more stronger reactions with them. And when you hear about something that is negative with some sort of media that you like, think of an author that says something that you're not happy with. Think of the musician who does the same thing or goes off on whatever. I think that it's only natural as humans to feel a sense of betrayal whenever you see something that you love and something that creates something that you love betrays you in a seemingly fundamental level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's definitely a good way to put it. 
I'm not here to try to change minds on Bobby Kotick or to say, it's great he's a capitalist. Let's put him on a pedestal. Hurrah to the capitalists. That's not what we're doing here. It's it's about being as nuanced as we can with the subject matter and acknowledging that even while there are some things there that a person can certainly take issue with, as we get later on in this, we'll talk about some of the very cynical things that happen at Activision that causes a lot of problems with some of their game lines, quite frankly, even as the company itself continues to be profitable. We'll get into that, but I think it's important to just be as nuanced as we can and get as much understanding as we can of what's going on here and who this person is and what the stakes are and and what has people upset. You're certainly allowed to feel like somebody that has that single-minded devotion to making money is, is not the kind of person you want to associate with. On the flip side, Bobby Kotick, by his own admission, doesn't understand people that make just a little bit of money and then blow it all on pleasure. For him, that's something very alien, but he still understands the concept. He's not a robot. He does understand the concept of pleasure, and he has been able to inhabit the intersection of financial acumen and entertainment. He has built Activision, now Activision Blizzard, into this monumental company because of these instincts that he has, for better or for worse. So now that we've got a bit of a sense of Bobby Kotick, the man, let's start talking about Bobby Kotick, the businessman. Obviously, he's running side hustles as a teenager. We've talked about that. But his first formal business actually begins while he's in college. It's kind of funny. And this is one of these things. I mean, I've I've obviously never interviewed Bobby Kotick. Be a fascinating interview someday. Uh, Now's not the time for many reasons, but uh, he would be a fascinating interview someday. Despite all of this business stuff, he didn't go into business when he went to college. <laughs> Academically, he was far more aimless. He, he applied to Ivy League schools and didn't get in. He ended up attending the University of Michigan, far away in the Midwest from his Long Island upbringing. He didn't major in business or economics or accounting or anything like that. He actually bounced around between multiple majors. He was an English major for a while, and most significantly, he was an art history major, which was largely because of the influence of his mother. Because his mother was an interior designer, she was very artistic, and she was into art. That's one passion that he does have. Like, he's not devoid of passions. We talk about the money stuff. We talked about how he does like food. He's also very passionate about art. Even to this day, he is a very particular art collector. And I mean, he doesn't just buy art for art's sake. And I think this goes back to kind of his personality again. As an art collector, he doesn't just blow all of his money on art, but he looks for very particular pieces of very particular aesthetic value and focuses on acquiring these. You know, again, in this period of kind of myth building around him in the late 2000s, you know, they interviewed an an art dealer that he's dealt with, and the art dealer was all full of praise, where he's like, oh, he's a much more discerning collector than other people. Some of that is puff piece material. But I think that there probably is a germ of truth to that, because again, this is another aspect of the Bobby Kotick personality. He is a shrewd evaluator. He knows where there are great opportunities, and he knows how to seize opportunities, and he doesn't get distracted by flash, by sparkly, shiny things. He focuses in on what is really important, and he goes for it. So that kind of shows in the art collecting. But in his education, 
he's kind of aimless here, which is kind of interesting. You know, bouncing from major to major, not involved in business. For all I knew, know, he was planning to go to graduate school. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, he might have had a plan. Maybe he just saw college as a time where he could indulge what passions he did have and that he would get his life together later. I don't know. I mean, I literally don't. Again, he'd be a fascinating interview. What I do know, though, is that he ended up becoming friends and roommates at Michigan with a gentleman by the name of Howard Marks. Howard Marks was half French, half American. He was born in the United States, but he had lived much of his life in Paris. He was an electronics genius. He built his own television set at the age of 13. He actually designed the French keyboard again while he was a teenager. He designed the French keyboard for the Apple II. He was a genius, and he was a tech guy, and they became friends, and they became roommates. One of the kind of cool things that Marx came up with a way to do is he figured out a way to turn an Olivetti typewriter into a computer printer. He created this chip that you could put in an Olivetti typewriter, and obviously you'd have to put some peripheral interface stuff in there as well, but he figured out a way to transform an Olivetti typewriter into a printer. We have to remember... These days, you know, printers are so cheap now and ink so expensive that sometimes, you know, people will just buy a whole new printer when they run out of ink rather than buy a new ink cartridge because it's cheaper to buy the printer or more economical to buy the printer with the ink cartridges it comes with and throw out your old printer from a couple of years ago than it is to, you know, just keep restocking it with ink. And as someone who works in IT kids, do not buy an inkjet printer. Yeah. Get a laser printer with toner Yes, because you're going to save yourself money over the long run. Even if your inkjet printer is just sitting there, not printing something, it does a cleaning cycle once a day in order to make sure that print head stays functioning. And yes, it will burn through that ink in no time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Today, we think of printers as these cheap commodities. But in the early 1980s, printers were not cheap commodities. Obviously, you can buy a more expensive printer today, too. But I'm just talking about you know the average person. It's a cheap commodity. But in the early 1980s, printers were expensive. Like, really, really expensive. You didn't even get ink. You had ribbons. Yes. Being able to take a typewriter and turn it into a printer, that was a cost saving for the consumer. Because buying an electric typewriter and then buying this little upgrade kit as part of it and buying that as a printer was way cheaper than buying an actual printer. Marx comes up with this, and Kodak thinks this would be a great thing to try to sell. So they go into business together in uh, 1982 to sell these printers. And basically, they bought an ad, I think, in Byte magazine. They spent a few hundred dollars advertising this thing. Then they went on a college break. And when they came back at the post office, there was this huge box full of orders <laughs> from people that had seen the Byte ad. And they ended up selling about a thousand of them. It did not end up being a viable plan over the long term. While this was a great theory in practice, it didn't work very well. They had reliability issues. They broke down. Turns out an electric typewriter wasn't meant to be a printer. Who knew? They made a little money on this. They sold a few of these things, but they had to get out of it pretty quickly because even though it was a very clever hack, it really wasn't a viable printing solution. However, by this time in early 1983, you know, Howard Marks is in with the Apple people because he designed that keyboard for the Apple II. And he sees the Lisa computer. The Apple Lisa was the first microcomputer that had a GUI interface that was available to buy commercially. It was targeted businesses. It was super expensive. It was $10,000. Of course, Apple learned all about the GUI from Xerox, but Xerox hadn't marketed their machine yet. 
The Lisa was revolutionary because it had this graphical user interface, and Howard Marks saw that, and he thought that was pretty neat. He was basically like, what if I could create a GUI interface for a machine that does not cost $10,000 for some of these 8-bit computers that are out there in the world, like the Apple II and the Commodore 64 and all of that? So he created a simple, rudimentary GUI operating system that could be run on low-end computers. Kotick thought this was a pretty neat kind of thing, and, and they decided, you know, that they'd market this together, that, you know, Marx would make the product, and Kotick, the energetic, fast-talking salesman, would sell it. So they founded a company called Arctronics to do this. They called their operating system Jane to emphasize the simplicity. It was hearkening to the idea of a plain Jane, something very uncomplicated, unsophisticated, as well as the idea of Jane in the spot book, C-spot, C-spot run, and, you know, Jane's in there as well. It was all about the connotation of the name Jane with things that are very simple, uncomplicated, unsophisticated, because their idea was, look, with this GUI interface, that intimidating blinking cursor is not standing between you and using your computer anymore. They decide to market this Jane thing. And of course, this is going to take a little more money because an operating system is a big deal. They're actually hiring people to put this together. I mean, this isn't something Marx can really just create on his own. They need people. So they're going to have to put a company, you know, they're putting Arctronics together. They're going to need some employees. They're going to need to build this thing. They're going to need some seed capital. Bobby Kotick, who is well-connected because his family's well-connected, you know, Long Island attorney, is getting ready to start putting out feelers to try to figure out how to finance this company. He's lined up some meetings in New York. I'm sure he leaned on his father's connections to do this. He'd set up some meetings in New York to try to get some funding. But in the meantime, he took a trip with a friend of his and his friend's parents to a fundraising ball in Dallas, Texas, called the Cattle Baron's Ball, a big fundraising event, I think at that time, for cancer research with a lot of very wealthy, very elite people there. And uh, I guess his friend's family had an extra ticket and you know, asked him if he wanted to come along or whatever. And so, sure, he goes to the Cattle Baron's Ball. It's not melodramatic or overdramatic to say that attending that event is what really changes Bobby Kotick's life forever, because it is at this event that he meets a gentleman by the name of Steve Wynn. Steve Wynn is, quite simply, the most famous casino mogul in history. He basically single-handedly turned Las Vegas into the Las Vegas that we know today. He was one of the primary people that transformed Vegas into this mecca of big, humongous luxury hotels and fancy shows and entertainment. You know, it's it's not just a place with some small little casinos where you're pumping quarters into the slot machine kind of deal, which is really what Vegas had been before that time. He's the one that pioneered this idea of the super hotels and the big entertainments, the big shows. He started by buying a share in a small casino called the Frontier Hotel and Casino. From there, in 1971, he bought a controlling interest in the Golden Nugget and turned it into a massive hotel casino. He engaged Frank Sinatra to headline shows there, kind of got involved in that way. But then at the end of the 1980s is when he really got it going, when he created the Mirage, which opened in 1989. Obviously, this is after the period where Bobby Kotek has met him. 
when he opened the Mirage, I mean, it was it was just so non-traditional because there was this huge tropical forest, there were live animals, there was a volcano that erupted nightly. He turned Las Vegas into spectacle. Before Steve Wynn, Las Vegas was a place where you could go gamble. After Steve Wynn, Las Vegas was a spectacle, an entity unto itself that justified its existence by more than just having casinos. He made it a destination. You know, obviously other people got involved in that as well, but Wynn was the one that really got the ball rolling, and for decades he was the most influential person in Las Vegas. He hadn't hit all of those heights by 1983-ish when Bobby Kotick met him. He was already a successful casino entrepreneur in Vegas and in Atlantic City at that time. He was already very successful. Kotick, as I said, he's very high energy. He's very personable when he wants to be. I mean, he's portrayed, again, by gamers as kind of the soulless machine because he's seen as not liking games, not liking entertainment. You know, he once made the statement, it's my job to take the fun out of making games. You know, that that makes him come off as very robotic. But he is very personable when he wants to be, and he can schmooze with the best of them, and he can talk business with the best of them. He's introduced to Steve Wynn by these family friends that he's with because they know Wynn. Again, he's well-connected because he's you know been in that Long Island crowd. They get to talking, and Wynn is just blown away, and Wynn sees a lot of himself in Bobby Kotick because Wynn was a brash guy who didn't really have much. He was young. He was energetic You know, when he started. You know, he's older now, but when he got started, he was young, energetic, looking to change the world, and he sees so much of that same energy in Bobby Kotick. It turns out that the family is going back to St. Louis, and so Wynn, because Wynn does know them, offers to take them to St. Louis on his plane, because he's got a private jet. Then after that, he's going on to New York, and Bobby Kotick's got this pitch meeting coming up in New York, you know, for raising money for Octronics. So he basically asks if he can stay on to New York. (laughs) He basically hitchhikes on Steve Wynn's private jet. Wynn says, sure, and they get to talking, you know, on the plane ride. They probably talk some of the ball, too, but they get to talking on on the plane ride. And Wynn is just really taken with this idea for this operating system. He's not a tech guy. He's not a computer guy. But he's taken with Bobby Kotick's vision for this and, you know, ease of use of uh, using computers and computers being transformative technology and this, that, and the other thing. He had been helped. When he was first buying into casinos, he had needed a lot of help from a wealthy benefactor. He had always kind of said to himself again, when could be mythologizing himself too, but this is what he says, you know, he'd been looking for an opportunity to provide the same opportunity to another young guy just getting his start, just like he was when when he had help getting in the casino business. He sees so much of himself in Bobby Kotick and is so taken by Bobby Kotick that he says, I'll be your investor. So he invests $300,000 in Arctronics and takes a third of the company. So the company is Howard Marks, Bobby Kotick, and Steve Wynn, the casino mogul. Wynn would be part of all of Kotick's ventures going forward after this, including, of course, Activision. This was the turning point because Kotick had great business sense. He was a great salesman. He was very energetic. He was very personable, at least when it came to business matters. But he didn't have—he wasn't wealthy. He didn't have capital. Now he had all of those things, plus he has a wealthy patron in Steve Wynn. They do the Arctronics thing. They do the Jane thing. At first, it does pretty well, because this whole GUI thing is new and exciting. It hasn't really been seen before. People are intrigued by it. That blinking cursor is intimidating for a lot of people that want to use computers. They do something like $2 million in sales pretty quickly. They did about 500000 worth of sales in seven months. 
They license it to other companies. They translate it into other languages. They go international. I think they end up reaching a couple million before it's all said and done. But it ended up being a fleeting market because there were more sophisticated computers with more sophisticated GUIs just around the corner that were still relatively expensive compared to, say, a Commodore 64, but they weren't $10,000 like the Lisa. The Macintosh was coming. The Atari ST was coming. The Commodore Amiga was coming. These systems had their own operating systems, their own GUI operating systems. There really wasn't a place for a third-party add-on like this Jane software that Arctronics was doing. That ends up falling apart after a little bit. And so Bobby, always looking for an opportunity, he still has a strong belief. He's become a very strong believer that computers are going to be a massive opportunity in the future. Obviously, he's right about that. So they're looking for other things to do, and they field a few different kind of offers. He decides that software is probably a safer place to be. I mean, operating systems are a piece of software, but operating systems are a very different piece of software. They're a very particular piece of software that you only buy one of for your computer. I mean, you might upgrade it later, but I mean, at the time, you're only using one operating system at a time, essentially. We won't talk about DOS on top of Windows or Jam on top of this. For our purposes of a simple explanation here, you're only using one operating system at a time. It's an expensive piece of software. You buy it once, and then you never buy it again for years and years. He decides that that's not really a business that is viable to be in as a third party like this. But software, other forms of software on those computers, that's going to be a market because there's hardware proliferating, and people are going to need software for those machines. They actually go to Sony and get pitched by Mickey Shuloff. Sony, I think at this time, they're getting involved in CD stuff. I think probably CDI. I know CDI is a Philips system, but early on, Philips and Sony were very much collaborators in a lot of things. And I believe in the 80s, Sony was looking at being part of CDI as well. Mickey Shuloff kind of pitches them on maybe making CD stuff, CD software. That's not really something that they're interested in doing because they just don't see a market for that yet. You know, because this is this is 1985. There is no market really for CD software yet in 1985. I mean, they kind of correctly realized that that was very small and very niche and not where they wanted to be. He ends up going around to Commodore. Commodore has been getting into a little trouble and he thinks that maybe there's an opportunity to buy into Commodore. He's kind of high on the Amiga. So he meets with Irving Gould about buying out a a controlling stake in Commodore, but Gould's not interested in selling. However, he does identify that the company has a need for packaging and translation of packaging and manuals and stuff into other languages as the company goes international. So out of kind of this whole thing with Commodore, he and Marx end up establishing a company called the Disk Company, which gets involved in packaging, manuals, translation of such materials, and then also gets involved in software as well. It's actually kind of funny. There's a brief period of time where Bobby Kotick and Howard Marks are looking at becoming an affiliated label with Electronic Arts, which is so funny, considering that obviously there's a great rivalry between Electronic Arts and Activision in later years when Bobby Kotick's at the head of it. He attends some Electronic Arts developer meetings and is is looking at maybe getting in with them. I don't think Electronic Arts actually ends up publishing any of his stuff, but it's just kind of an interesting ships passing in the night kind of thing (laughs) that the future CEO of Activision would be barking up the Electronic Arts tree. But they do this packaging business and software business. Steve Wynn is again an investor in this. They make a whole suite of products for the Amiga. 
They create a word processor called Kind Words, a desktop publishing software called Publisher's Choice. They make an art program, a paint program called Fusion Paint. They make an animation program called Imagine, a database called InfoFile. They make a lot of software. They're never a leader with any of this. They make some money. They make a couple of mil again. Obviously, when we think of word processors, we don't think of kind words. Never heard of kind words. You know, when we think of paint programs, we don't think of fusion paint. I mean, they were small potatoes. They made some money on this packaging stuff, but it just wasn't growing. There was no breakout software. Exactly. So again, he comes kind of restless and he starts looking for other things that he can do. The company is established in 85 and it's still going in the, in the late 80s. Now we flash forward to probably about 1989 or so, 1989, 1990. He's still got the disc company. But he's looking for the next hustle because this hustle doesn't seem to be doing it. I mean, the Amiga has obviously faded away. The PC's coming in strong, and Microsoft and WordPerfect and all these other companies are already dominating that market. There's no place for Bobby Kotick on the PC. So he's starting to look again. At this point, you've had the video game industry really taking off. He's starting to look at ways into getting involved in this, and what he lights on is a company by the name of Leisure Concepts. Leisure Concepts is a licensing company, a marketing and licensing company. Basically, if you've got a big product like the Nintendo Entertainment System, and you have intellectual property on that big product, like Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda, and you want to exploit those properties in other areas, as Yogurt might say, merchandising, then you can go to a company like Leisure Concepts who is very adept at serving as a middleman who knows who all the players are in cartoons and breakfast cereals and bedsheets and toys and all of this, and can connect your product with all of these potential licensees and can be the middleman that works out all those deals and manages that business for you so that you don't have to. This is how you get Mario plushies, Zelda bedsheets, and of course, Bobby Kotick, the action figure. (laughs) Exactly. Leisure Concepts was founded by an old-hand marketer, former McCann Erickson ad man by the name of Stan Weston, whose biggest claim to fame is that he invented G.I. Joe. He created the entire concept of G.I. Joe for Hasbro back in 1963, or actually created the concept and then sold the concept to Hasbro, to be more exact. He understood the idea of creating a line. I mean, he created the action figure. He created the idea of the action figure line of a product that can go on for years and years with various accessories and upgrades. I mean, you'd had Barbie before that. You'd had dolls that kind of did that. But this was kind of the beginning of that in, in boy toys. It was the beginning of action figures. It was the beginning of huge action figure lines, not just selling a single thing. So he was a big deal in that space. He was also involved in the creation of Thundercats while he was at Leisure Concepts. A big name in children's entertainment licensing. He founded Leisure Concepts in 1970, and by the late 1980s, he had a lot of major licenses, including that Nintendo license, which was very successful. Weston was getting older. He was ready to retire. He was looking to sell the company. Bobby Kotick comes along, offers to buy the company, and they enter into very serious negotiations. Now, there are some sources that say that Bobby Kotick did own Leisure Concepts for a time. I do not believe this is accurate. 
I cannot find any newspaper articles referring to a sale by Weston to Bobby Kotick of Leisure Concepts. I've interviewed Al Khan, who was at Leisure Concepts at the time and then later did take over the company, which he then uh, renamed 4Kids Entertainment eventually, and which continued to have the Nintendo license and was responsible for the Pokemon rollout and everything, so still a big deal. He told me a little bit about the situation. He says that Kotick and Steve Wynn, always his benefactor, did come and wanted to buy the company and Weston was going to sell it to them. Because he talked about how he met with Kotick and Wynn and how they wanted him, Alcon, to stay on because they needed someone experienced in this business that they could learn the ropes from and teach them how it worked. Alcon had been a Coleco as a licensing man before this. He had been involved in some of the deals for some of the video games on the ColecoVision. He had also been very involved in getting the rights to Cabbage Patch. That's really how he made his name. At that point, he's made his name in other things since, including Pokemon. So he talks about how he had discussions with them and how they wanted him to stay on and learn the ropes, which he was not interested in doing. He didn't want to work for these outsiders, and so he wasn't going to stay on. He says that they just pivoted. So I don't think he ever actually owned Leisure Concepts. Some articles say he did. I think he kicked the tires on it, but ultimately decided not to buy it. However, as he was looking this over, as he was getting a feel for the business, as he was meeting with some of Leisure Concepts' clients, you know, he got to know people at Nintendo. The people at Nintendo put him on to a more exciting opportunity, which was Mediagenic. We did a whole episode on the Bruce Davis years of Activision, which he renamed Mediagenic, and what they got into and what they got in trouble on. So we won't go into all of that again here. There's a whole episode. Just to set the scene, here in probably about 1990 now, we're talking about when Bobby Kotick is discovering this. The once-proud Activision slash Mediagenic had gone through four grueling years of losses in the aftermath of the video game crash. They had tried to pivot into computer games. They had gotten perhaps a little too avant-garde with some of their products. They didn't have many hits. They weren't able to stem the tides of losses. They were still dealing with distribution problems left over from the crash. Jim Levy, the CEO, was forced by the board to resign after four years of losses. Bruce Davis was put in charge of the company. Bruce Davis tried to turn the company around by diversifying, 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 getting the company involved in the console business, not just with Nintendo, but also with Sega. Also getting the company more involved in business and productivity software. A lot of sources say that he's the one that moved them into business software. That's a myth. Activision was already moving into that stuff under Jim Levy before that. Electronic Arts was moving into that stuff. So it wasn't so weird for Activision to do that. That's one of the things that we try to rehabilitate, even though there were mistakes still made. That's one thing we tried to rehabilitate Bruce Davis on a little bit, this idea that it was ridiculous they got into business software because it was already happening. But he tried to get into business software, presentation software. They banked really hard on HyperCard, which was an add-on for Apple computers, Macintosh. None of that went very well, and after a brief return to profitability, they started encountering losses again, incurring losses again. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was the final conclusion of the patent litigation with Philips over the Magnavox Odyssey patents. We've talked about this before in a couple of places, but this is so important to the Kotick takeover that we do need to talk about this again briefly. Activision was one of the many companies that was sued by Philips, which had purchased Magnavox, 
over the patents that Magnavox slash Philips had licensed from Sanders Associates related to the creation of the Magnavox Odyssey video game system. The key patent here, as we talk about in our Magnavox litigation episode, is that there was a patent on the concept of having a player-controlled object and a computer-controlled, a machine-controlled object on a television screen. That machine-controlled object interacting, colliding with that player-controlled object, and then changing vectors as a result of that collision. Magnavox, Sanders, Ralph Baer had a patent on this. Ralph Baer had patented on behalf of Sanders. Sanders licensed those patents to Magnavox, which was purchased by Philips in 1974. They went after any game that exhibited this kind of gameplay. They patented it on the basis of the tennis or table tennis game that they had on the Odyssey. So most of the games that this was involved with were like Pong clones. It could be anything where there's a vector change. So it could be a baseball game. It could be a hockey game. Lots of sports games have this happen, where a puck or a ball or whatever collides with a bat or a stick and goes off in a different direction. So Activision had done games like that. They did a nice hockey game, for instance. So they were one of the many companies sued. Pretty much every company, there were some companies that settled, but pretty much every company would continue to fight this patent over time. Their argument was, we don't do what the Magnavox Odyssey did. This was incredibly primitive technology. This is technology so astoundingly primitive that it comes from a time even before digital watches were considered a neat idea. 1960s technology. So yeah, they made an object bounce off another object, and we made an object bounce off another object. But we didn't copy their way of doing it. We didn't steal their technology. Their technology's dumb. Activision Ice Hockey is not just Magnavox Odyssey in space. It is far more sophisticated. It's on ice. (laughs) That's right. You know, I mean, they fought it. Nintendo later fought it. Mattel fought it. Lots of companies fought it because they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that that could be a patent infringement. Quite frankly, it probably shouldn't have been. But it was so early when this technology was so new that the courts that made these early rulings on this in the 70s probably didn't really understand the finer technological distinctions on this. And these were cases decided by judges. These kind of cases, complicated patent litigation does not go to jury trial. These were judges actually deciding these cases. Once you had a verdict in Magnavox's favor, then it was impossible for later cases to overcome that because it was settled law at that point. But everybody tried anyway because it was just so ridiculous that anyone could say that they stole something from this 1960s-era technology. Because even though it came out at the beginning of the 70s, all the technology in it was 1960s technology from when Ralph Baer was developing it. Everybody fought it. That wasn't unusual. Activision lost, which was also not unusual. But Activision appealed. Activision was so incensed by this that they appealed the verdict. And that was unusual. And that was a problem. The verdict came down, and then for years afterwards, they pursued an appeal of the case. And finally, in 1990, they lost the appeal. And in addition to all the money they had spent all through the years fighting it, they now owed Phillips $6.6 million in damages. With all of the other problems that the company had at this juncture, they could not afford to pay that legal settlement. We talked about in our Mediagenic episode, but it's important to this story too, which is why we're repeating it. Bruce Davis tried to negotiate 
an equity settlement instead, where instead of taking that $6.6 million in cold hard cash, Phillips would take that $6.6 million in stock, in an equity stake in Activision, because Activision is a public company, went public in 1983. You know, then you're rolling the dice. You know, if the company does poorly, you may not see any money out of that. But if the company does well, you may end up actually with more than $6.6 million by the time you come away from this. Phillips would not do it. Bruce Davis is convinced it's because they wanted to make an example out of Activision slash Mediagenic because they were getting ready to go after Nintendo, and Nintendo was a very wealthy, well-backed, and savvy legal company. They knew that that was going to be a difficult fight. He thinks that they wanted to make an example out of Activision and grind them into the dirt as a warning to Nintendo. Obviously, that's his speculation. That doesn't come from Phillips Insiders, but it's not a bad theory. It could also just be that Phillips looked at the state of Activision slash Mediagenic at that time, a company that was not in very good shape, and decided that maybe that wasn't a good investment and we'd just rather have our cash up front. You appealed this, and you made me spend more money in legal fees. I'm not going to play nice with you anymore. Exactly. It could be that, too. So it could be a lot of reasons, but for whatever reason, they refused to convert this cash settlement into an equity stake. This meant that Activision could not continue as it was. Bruce Davis, for all of the criticisms that he gets, some of which are justified, some of which are not, Bruce Davis is a decent guy. He's not a soulless guy. He knows that bankruptcy is probably the only course of action at this point. But he does not want to take the company into bankruptcy because He knows that that'll be basically the end of the livelihood of everyone at the company. I mean, maybe Activision slash Mediagenic emerges from bankruptcy out the other side. Maybe it does, but only after it's already laid off everybody in the meantime, and he doesn't want to do that. He's very close with the people at Nintendo, and Howard Lincoln has been advising him. It's like, you need to take the company into bankruptcy. There's no other way. And and Bruce Davis, uh, even though he understands the wisdom of that, is resisting this. From reading between the lines, again, I'd love to hear from Kotick, but from reading between the lines, I think what happens is because Bruce Davis doesn't want to tank the company into bankruptcy, the only other possible course is an influx of investment capital from someplace. Nintendo's advising him closely. Bobby Kotick is meeting with Nintendo people as part of kicking the tires on leisure concepts. From reading between the lines on the few sources we have on this, I think what kind of happens is that Nintendo ends up introducing Bobby Kotick to the Activision people, the Mediagenic people, and saying that here's an opportunity for you to buy into this industry cheaply. Bobby Kotick, Howard Marks, Steve Wynn, and another friend of Bobby Kotick's by the name of Brian Kelly take a look at Activision. They see all the problems there. There's a lot of problems, but they also see a storied company with a storied IP, and they had so many hits back in the day. They had Pitfall. They had Kaboom. And they've also, of course, bought Infocom. So they have Zork, Hitchhiker's Guide, and all of these other IPs that Infocom did when they were once mighty as well. They see the storied IP history. They see a fast-growing video game market. And they see an opportunity to get in on a company for dirt, dirt cheap with almost no outlay. They decide to take it. So in December 1990... This group of investors, under the heading of a company that they call BHK, 
I wonder if that's like Bobby Howard and Kelly. I mean, Kelly's his last name, not his first name. But I wonder if that's where BHK comes from. But I don't know. But it was basically just an entity created to invest in this. You know, it wasn't a pre-existing company. They organize BHK and they purchase... 25% of Activision. Remember, it's a publicly traded company, so it's not like there's an owner they can buy it from. They have to buy stock in the company. It's publicly traded. They buy 25% of the company for $440,000. It's nothing. Really nothing at all. Bobby Kotick himself has a 9% stake in the company. I don't know what the other partner's stakes in it was, but the, the total stake came up to about 25%. So they don't own the company at this point, but as a large shareholder, they do have the power now to push changes on the company. As such a large shareholder, they're going to be able to get board seats on the company. They're going to be able to demand executive changes. So that's what they do. You know, they buy in in December 1990, and then at the shareholders meeting, you know, they say, you know, we're big shareholders. We need board seats. And we believe strongly that there should be a management change at the company. I mean, everyone saw this coming. It's not like they were stabbing Bruce Davis in the back. Bruce Davis, I'm sure, knew when he sold out to these people that his days, they were numbered. Kotick and Marks join the board. They also bring in some some outside people to join the board as well. Stephen Mayer from a company called Digital FX joins the board. Uh, Barbara Isker, an entertainment analyst, joins the board as part of their group. Steve Wynn doesn't join the board because he very much wants to be a silent partner in this stuff. He's putting up money and he's buying stock, but he doesn't want to be involved in governance. Then in February 1991, they put this new reconstituted board together. Bruce Davis is forced to step down as chairman and chief executive officer, and Bobby Kotick takes over the company. They immediately do that thing that Bruce Davis had not wanted to do, but really was inevitable because the company has some $30 million in debt. It's not just that $6.6 million Magnavox settlement. They have lots of other debt, too. So they enter Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Activision basically becomes a new company at that point. It is still the same Activision. For one thing, they changed the name back to Activision. I keep calling it Activision, even though it's technically mediagenic at this point. But they do change the name back to Activision, and it is the same corporate entity going back to the founding of Activision in 1979. But they do reincorporate in Delaware, which is a state that a lot of corporations are incorporated in because the courts there are very knowledgeable on business matters and are tend to be very pro-business. So corporations like to be incorporated in Delaware because that means then they can have cases against them heard in Delaware courts, which tend to be very favorable to them. He moves the company from Mountain View in Silicon Valley to the Los Angeles area because he sees it not as a technology company, but as an entertainment company. Los Angeles is the center of the entertainment industry, and that's where he wants to be. All 150 employees are terminated, with the exception of eight people. They keep only eight employees out of 150. They keep a couple of admin types. They keep Eddie Dombrower and Tom Sloper, a couple of producers. They keep Bill Folk, who's a technology guy. They keep a couple of others, but out of 150 employees, eight remain. And they create this essentially brand new Activision, even though it's the old company. They essentially create this brand new Activision in Los Angeles, California. They put a prepackaged bankruptcy plan together. I'm sure Brian Kelly is very instrumental in this. He's more of a finance guy. 
I mean, Kotick's a good businessman, but he's definitely more of the strategizer and the opportunity guy and the marketing guy, you know, the face of the franchise kind of guy. You have Brian Kelly, the numbers guy. You have Howard Marks, the tech guy. And you then have Steve Wynn, the silent partner, who's the money man. That's kind of these big four here. Kotick and Kelly put together a prepackaged bankruptcy plan for all of the debt holders in the company and are able to package their $25 million of their debt in such a way that they're basically able to get rid of it. They're still going to owe some stuff on it, but you know they no longer own $25 million. They renegotiate and, and get a structured settlement in place as to how they're going to pay back their creditors, so not everyone's demanding their money from them anymore. They get that debt under control. That leaves Phillips. Good old Phillips. Bobby Kotick and some of his people go to North American Phillips' headquarters, New York, I think. They sit down with a whole room full of Phillips executives, and he basically says the same thing that Bruce Davis said. We don't have the money. We cannot pay this. Attempting to pay this will destroy our company. We would like to convert our settlement, our $6.6 million settlement obligation, into an equity stake. And Phillips says, no. We are not going to do this. According to Kotick, it was the people involved in the patent litigation were the people at Phillips that were completely 100% against this, you know, specifically, saying, no, we want our money from this lawsuit. It's possible that at this point, the company would have been able to work with that. It would have been hard, but it's possible they might have been able to work with it at this point because they had managed to restructure their other debt. So they weren't in quite as dire a situation as Bruce Davis had been in with Mediagenic. But Bobby Kotick had no interest in playing that game. And so, as, as he's described it you know, in, in press interviews, he picked up his key card for the Activision offices, he laid it on the table, and he wished Phillips good luck. Basically saying, okay, yeah, if we're not doing this deal, then my company's sunk, and so... You know, you're just going to have to take the company now in payment, you know, not as an equity stake, but just, you know, liquidate the company to get as much money as you can out of it. I'm done. Good luck with it. Goodbye. Walked out of the room. Phillips did not call his bluff. Before he left the building, they ushered him back in and said, fine, we'll take an equity stake in Activision. You no longer owe us $6.6 million. So they did it. They bought the company. They eliminated as much of the debt as they could. They got the settlement off their back. They cut costs to the bone. They relocated. And they're ready to start trying to run this thing. The first thing they need to do is get some capital in place for all of this. In 1991, they raise $5 million, basically, to keep the lights on. Steve Wynn provides some of that money. A private equity capitalist by the name of Edward Lampert, who was a former classmate of Kotick's, again, he's got all these connections, kicks in some of that money. And they also get some money from the Shea family, a lovely couple that Bobby Kotick met while on vacation in Thailand. So again, here's, here's the Bobby Kotick charm again. I mean, he, as a businessman, he's not charming to gamers, but as a businessman, this guy is a charmer. He's just on vacation in Thailand. Gets in a conversation with this wealthy couple, the Shays, is telling him, I guess, about the business, about the troubles he's having, about what he sees as the future, about turning it around. And they kick in a portion of this $5 million in 1991 to get the company jump-started again. 
He really is quite the businessman. I mean, no matter what you think of him, you can't take away from that. Then they take near-complete control of the company by merging the disk company into Activision. So by merging a company that they have an ownership stake in into Activision and converting shares of the disk company into Activision shares. Disk company was not a public company, but even private companies can have quote-unquote shares. They're just not publicly traded on the stock market. So by merging the disk company into Activision and, and transferring disk company shares into Activision shares, they boost their ownership stake of this group of four to 54% of the company. They're never going to have complete control of Activision because once a company has become a publicly traded company, I mean, there's basically no going back from that. I mean, yes, you can theoretically buy 100% of the stock of a company and take it private. That has very rarely happened in business history, but it's not economical. It's not realistic. It's not going to happen. But by merging the disc company in, they are able to up their ownership stake to 54%, giving them ironclad control. Most of the board is people they appointed as well. And so they have ironclad control over the board. They have ironclad control over the shares. This is part of the reason why Kotick has been and is and, and remains so powerful within the company. I mean, their, their ownership stake of the company has risen and fallen over time, obviously. This is just what their ownership was at that exact moment. But Kotick has always had strong control over shares, and he's had strong control over the board, which is why even when the sexual harassment situation came up and people outside of the company were calling on him to resign, there was no way he was ever going to resign because he's always had control of the board, because he's always had strong share control. They do that. The disc company actually keeps running for a while, side by side with Activision in the same building. He does eventually, I'm not sure when, but he does eventually sell the disc company for $26 million. But for a time, the disc company operation is actually part of the Activision operation. I think probably employing more people than Activision itself is until they finally sell that. They merge that in, and then they do a new offering in 1992. It's already a public company, but they offer more shares of the company in 1992 to raise another $40 million. Now they're stable. They're not brilliant yet, but they're stable. And what he promises to the shareholders is that over the next four years, from 91 to about 95, what we are going to do is we are going to provide 50% growth every year in sales while providing essentially break-even profits. We'll try to make a little bit of money, but we're not looking to be wildly profitable yet. We're going to get there, but this is our plan. He's very structured. He's very careful about money things. And so he and Kelly and Marks, they have a plan for how they're going to bring this business back. And they're going to spend their next few years just basically concentrating on regrowing the company to a respectable level and not losing money anymore. But they're not going to have a big return on investment yet. They hire a new head of what they're going to call the Activision Studio, a veteran of accolade by the name of Peter Doctorow, who is going to be charged with rebuilding the Activision internal development apparatus, which, remember, is basically non-existent at this point because they fired everybody. They kept a couple of producers, and they kept a technology guy, Bill Volk, but they didn't really keep anything else than that. They hire Peter Doctorow to rebuild the Activision studio. They study the competition closely, and what Bobby Kotick decides that he has to do is there, there are basically two things that he decides the company needs to do. First of all, he looks to the early days of Electronic Arts for inspiration for the company. 
he appreciated the way that electronic arts promoted the ability for the creative staff to do their own thing. He's not looking to promote artists as rock stars in the way that act, that electronic arts did in the early days, but he appreciates the idea of the artistic freedom. This is kind of funny to think about because Activision today is not in any way known for this, but at this time, this was really what he was looking at. He wanted to create an organization where the individual producers, designers, etc. would have a lot of ownership in what was going on in the company. They would have a lot of freedom to make their own choices with minimal direction from corporate. Some direction, yes. He's not talking about just letting them go on free-for-all, but he wants to empower individuals within the company to make their own decisions. He feels that that was a strength of the early electronic arts, something that electronic arts was starting to lose in this period as they moved towards commodities. He didn't want to just be a commodity company, which is so funny because that's, that's exactly what Activision becomes later. They release 50 million Tony Hawk games and 50 million Guitar Hero games. They do the whole commodity thing. But at this point in the company, this is what he sees as what is needed for the company to be successful. They need to build up a stable of talent that can create them some good games. And in order to do that, he needs to give them their freedom. He also decides that in the short term, as they're rebuilding their talent, the way to bring in money right away is to revisit some of the biggest Activision and Infocom hits of yesteryear. He understands that this is a valuable IP catalog that the company is sitting on. So he wants to mine that catalog, not just in terms of re-releases, but creating new games in some of these franchises, creating new Zork games, creating new Pitfall games, creating new Kaboom games. This will be the way that they can stabilize and to start to turn the company around. In our next episode... We will start at this point, where we have circa 1992, 91, 92. We have this small company, very few people, a dozen or so overall, probably. Peter Doctorow just brought in to run the studio, a couple of producers, technology person, some admin people, not much else. We'll take a look at some of the products and some of the ideas that allowed this company on the brink of death that Bobby Kotick has stabilized but not yet completely revived, and see how they start to become, ever so slowly, the biggest third-party publisher in the video game industry. I know we spent a lot of time not really talking about games and everything. We really went into depth on Bobby Kotick as a person, where he's coming from, and really, how did he gain all that power? But this is very, very valuable to really understanding where we go to in the next episode in order to understand how this person gets into the video game industry and is at the point where he starts, okay, he has that go get him attitude to just start mm -hmm. gobbling up these, seeing these perfect business opportunities, able to sell things for this, buy properly for that, and able to really, as Alex said, become one of the most dominant video game publishers in the world. Mm -hmm. So we will continue this epic story and see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. 
Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 